Today on Government Matters, just in time for Thanksgiving, a cookbook for customer experience. One of its authors tells you how government agencies can bake up some customer experience success. The incoming Joe Biden national security team knows the building and the business very well. A veteran of the Obama administration on what industry should watch and what's changed in four years. And the number one story of the week, the transition that isn't yet. Two transition veterans explain what's really at stake for government agencies. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Welcome to the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new cookbook with recipes for customer experience success. It has a new institute to teach customer experience techniques to other VA offices across the country, too. Linda Davis is the Chief Veterans Experience Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. It couldn't be more apropos that Thanksgiving weekend well, as we prepare for the big holiday that you're releasing this as a cookbook. Why does the cookbook format work so well for customer experience? Linda, welcome. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, the cookbook provides us with uh, the easy way to access the key ingredients that let not only government agencies, um, but all of our uh, partners across the corporate sector in our community, in our nonprofit and faith-based organizations, see what are the key ingredients to help them deliver the best experience of customer service in care benefits and services to our veterans, their families, caregivers, and survivors. And that's particularly important at this critical time of the holidays. The information that you provide is excellent, but and it's cleverly presented. You focus on eight cooking categories, you call them. Strategy, operations, funding, organization, culture, incentives, partnerships, and capabilities. How did you narrow your focus among all of the threads that I imagine were possible to consider that are important to customer experience down to those eight, Linda? Years of experience at the VA and with our partners across government. So in 2015, the innovation by the secretary then created this Office of Veteran Experience, customer experience, customer service. We've worked with OMB on the president's um, uh, A11 incentive to deliver customer experience. We've been the lead agency for the last two years. That enabled us to work across government to make sure we understood these ingredients and we've tested them not only in the VA, but we've tested them with our colleagues at TSA, at GSA, at the Department of Education, Student Financial Assistance. And those are recipes that are in this cookbook that enable any agencies or those who are our partners to understand how and when they need to address these key elements, adapt them to their environment and to their customer, to reach the best outcome, which is delivering highest quality, consistent service experience. Is there material here, Linda, for anybody that's at any point in the journey on customer experience? If an agency thinks, well, we're doing okay, uh, is there still something here for them to learn? Absolutely. In here, there are examples of how you, what we say, listen, learn, 
lean in and measure your results. How you apply data, tools, technology, and engagement to ensure that um, you are reaching your agency's or your organization's mission in the right time and the right way that fits your customers' um, need. So for example, during COVID at the Department of Veterans Affairs, we had to adjust our use of data and technology and tools to make sure that we were listening to what the veterans wanted most. Yes, they wanted to have telehealth, which increased by 4,000%, but they also wanted to get back to face-to-face -to -face interaction, which reduces that isolation. They told us how they wanted that through our B-Signal surveys. They said they wanted a clean facility. They wanted space. They wanted to see masks. They wanted assistance with appointments. So we developed apps to let them wait in their car for appointments. We developed green gloves initiatives to make sure everything was cleanliness. And we've done an excellent job training our employees on how to deliver the services that are needed in high risk time. We were also able to tech Millions and millions of texts have gone out specifically to veterans by geographic region and at a particular time to let them know that their facility was open again and that they could please come in and make appointments. We combined that with new contact centers, 24-7 live answering agents to let them know how to get in, how to make an appointment. We delivered emails that told them what to do at home. We also provided apps for those who couldn't be uh, getting into a car and coming into the VA that let us talk to not only the veteran, but also to their caregivers to reduce isolation. We gave them portals in their homes so they could connect to loved ones. We've done an uh, exceptional effort to reach out in the challenging times of COVID. And all of that has helped us learn the lessons of applying these key ingredients if you can do that in the worst of times, you can certainly be able to do it and benefit every single day in your delivery of care benefits and services, Grant. Maybe the first institute in the history of government with a cookbook as the main text. Linda Davis, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Our honor. Thank you, Grant. Up next, the defense industry under a Biden administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what happens to the defense industrial base when the transition is complete? You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The defense industrial base knows the incoming president and his team very well. Arnold Panaro, the chair of the board, the chair of the board of the National Defense Industrial Association, told Government Matters Wednesday, Joe Biden's well known to the defense industry and the national security community. You can see that conversation at GovMatters.tv. Frank Kendall was Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics in the Obama administration. He's now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Frank, thanks very much for coming on the program. Anything that the defense industry should watch or be ready for in a Biden administration, Frank? Um, I, I think that there will be less radical change than some people have expressed concerns about. Uh, there's a very experienced team that's 
uh, available to you know, President-elect Biden, and I think he'll have very highly competent people uh, supporting him. And I think they understand very well the threats to this nation and the needs that uh, national security imposes on us, uh, and they'll act accordingly. So I, I, I think there'll be uh, less radical change than some people have, have expressed concerns about. I do think there'll be movements and directions to do things that are more effective to counter some of the threats. And I think there'll be uh, more emphasis on our alliances, on our partners in the world, uh, and working more closely with them, and frankly, treating them with more respect than they've been treated with in the last few years. Does that emphasis on alliances and allies around the world mean anything different for the defense industrial base? Will there be more opportunities for them to sell to our partners and allies, Frank? Uh, I want to make sure I'm that I'm, I'm speaking only for myself, so I'm Correct. just my opinion here. Right? Understood, Frank. Thank um, you. I don't have any association with the transition. Um, the yeah, I, I think that there are things that cut both ways there. Okay, I think there will be a desire to work more closely with allies. I think there'll be a desire to engage in more cooperative activities, including things that are uh, involved with equipping and technology and so on. But I also think there's a strong desire to to, to benefit the American economy and to uh, promote things that. Uh, uh, will help the economy. You know, the administration will enter office with a long list of problems, and very high on that list are going to be COVID, the, econo the economy, uh, getting people back to work, uh, growing the economy, uh, racial injustice, climate change, and then national security. Uh, so there's a lot on the list, and they're all very important to the country. Uh, the right balance will have to be struck there somehow, and but part of it will be working closely with our allies. Part of it will be ensuring that they're equipped to do their part uh, in terms of national security, our shared security interest. And also at the same time, there'll be an interest in, I think, preserving jobs in the United States and creating more jobs in the United States. You note that uh, correctly, I, I agree with your assessment that the Biden transition team and the, the people who will likely populate uh, the Pentagon in that administration are very experienced. They've been there before. Um, and because of that, Frank, it strikes me the threat landscape at least as the Biden administration perceives it, not likely to be dramatically different than the threat landscape the way the Trump administration or the Obama administration perceived it. It really is uh, Russia, China, and the other adversaries that we've talked about at great length on this program. Uh, it's the same list that we had when we were in the Obama administration. Uh, Secretary Carter was very clear about this in the last budget we submitted. So the shift to what's now referred to as great power competition started prior to Trump. Uh, the national defense strategy that you put out, in terms of the threat piece of it at least, is, is something I think uh, people on both sides uh, should agree about. So I don't think you'll see a, a great change there. Uh, there's a good perception and good understanding of what those threats mean and how, how important they are, and also their priorities. The, uh, the thing that's going to be different, I think, as I said, is greater reliance on our partnerships around the world and a more even-handed approach, which uses diplomacy and other tools and not just the military or the threat of the military is its principal means of uh, in engaging. It strikes me one potential benefit to the defense industrial base is just knowing specifically in individual jobs who they'll be dealing with over an extended period of time. I talked to one leader at a defense contractor this week, Frank, who said, I'm just going to be glad to see that there won't be this long list of actings inside the department. What's the significance of that for the defense industrial base, do you think, Frank? I think it's really important to have professionals come into a lot of these jobs. I, I remember going back to the 90s when Bill Perry insisted that the acquisition executives in each of the services uh, be, be competent people who understand 
you know, the business of delivering new products to the military. Uh, I think that's important. I think professionalism matters, competence matters a great deal, and people should have a background that really prepares them for the jobs that they undertake. It's, it's not really fair to them, it's not fair to the country to have people come in who aren't uh, up to the jobs. And as you said, there's a deep bench out there for our Biden to pick from. Uh, you know, eight years of the Obama administration gave us a chance to grow an awful lot of people and prepare them for greater responsibility. And I think many of those people are anxious and, and interested in coming back in. So I, I think it'll be, uh, uh, he'll, he'll have a lot of good choices to make, I think, in terms of people that want to enter the government. Any significant changes that you expect regarding acquisition, given the fact that composition in Congress didn't really change much as a result of this election, and so the influences that we'll see in mechanisms like the National Defense Authorization Act in coming years are not likely to change too much? Well, we'll see. I, 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 my views on splitting AT&L, for example, have been well known for a long time. I think it's a pretty widely shared belief right now that it was a mistake to split AT&L. Whether the Congress is ready to address that or not, I'm not sure. Um, I, I do think that there are some things that could be done less than that that would, would probably be an improvement, certainly, in the, certain, in the current situation. And I'm hopeful that the next administration will be able to work with the Congress on those. Uh, the one thing that I fundamentally objected to about the split was that it split part of the life cycle of a new product away from the other, the rest of the cycle. Uh, getting the engineering function into ANS, I think, would be a smart move and have it clear that the entirety of a life cycle is, is under one undersecretary. Uh, science and technology and experimentation can stay under the research and engineering side. Um, the other thing is all the delegation of programs. I, I'm, I'm concerned that a lot of the programs that were started under the Trump administration were set up for failure, or at least not to deliver the products that users are gonna be happy with. So I think somebody needs to come in and review those and take a hard look at them, and not necessarily stop them, but make sure that they're on track. Uh, and I'm seeing increasing signs as I look at various programs that uh, people are not getting what they expected and they're not going to get it as quickly as they expected. So some repair work is going to be necessary. Frank Kendall, thank you very much. As always, great to have you back. Good to be with you. Thanks, Francis. Up next, the number one story of the week straight ahead on Government Matters, the transition that isn't yet and what it's really holding up across government. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week. Presidential transition teams have been in place for months, but the business of the transition has yet to begin. Robert Shea is National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton. He's former Associate Director at OMB, held that office during the transition from President Bush to President Obama. Dan Chenick is Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, former Chief of the Information Policy and Technology Branch at OMB, and a member of President Obama's transition team in 2008. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Robert, I start with you. Headline this week in uh, the Federal Times, Associated Press Story, Line, Biden's DIY transition proceeds without Trump assistance. How far can that transition team proceed without the current administration helping? So, Francis, you forgot to mention that Dan and I also co-chair ACT-IAC presidential election project, but I've, you probably didn't have enough time to introduce both of us to the way you probably wanted to. Um, let me just say there's a lot that President-elect Biden can do. Uh, they've been preparing for the transition since the summer. 
They've got a very experienced team uh, that's been working hard to begin to think about what policies and people they would put in place. And they can have a lot of informal question, uh, uh, conversations with um, folks throughout the federal government drawing on relationships those people already have. But you can only go so far, and the fact that you've got, you know, the, the nation's worst health care crisis, the nation's worst economic crisis, labor crisis, housing crisis, uh, national security fires popping up all over the place, the fact that you can't have official conversations in all those agencies is a genuine critical concern. Robert, there's not... There's so many things I don't have time to cover, and I appreciate you uh, correcting me on that, that the titles that you and Dan hold. Dan, Robert used a term there that I think is instructive, and that is official conversations. Are there appropriate, unofficial conversations that leaders at agencies can and should have with the Biden transition team? Well, certainly until uh, GSA makes the ascertainment that begins the official process, formal communications between the team and those agencies uh, will not occur. And, and it's hoped that that will occur as soon as possible so that the transition team can take the next steps, as Robert identified, to address such critical issues. In the meanwhile, there are many experts uh, who the transition team can consult with who have recently left the agencies, who work in and around the ecosystem with the agencies. There are many reports, some of which were published by groups that work with nonprofit groups, uh, the Partnership for Public Service leads the Center for Presidential Transition, which has a coalition of a number of groups working on transition issues. Um, there are a whole lot of groups that work in, in the Department of Education space, the Department of Transportation space. So the teams can get really smart about what the recommendations are, what the conditions are, by looking at the outside uh, reviews and talking to people who are expert in the agencies. But they really need to get into those agencies to really start to assemble those action plans. Is it helpful, Dan, that there are so many people on the Biden transition team list that have experience in the Obama administration and the Clinton administration? Or do, does the government change sufficiently, for example, over the past four years, that it will require kind of relearning what's going on inside those buildings? So it's very helpful. The team that they've put together, the agency review teams, are, are full of experts who really have strong ties to uh, the issues that each agency faces. Um, that, that, in addition to the outside expertise, really helps them to, to frame together an, an approach. Robert, you and I have spoken on a number of occasions about what people inside the agency should have been doing all along to prepare for a transition either to a second term of the Trump administration or to a Biden administration. Does that plan, does that agenda change given that it's pretty much inevitable at this point that at some time the Biden teams will be coming in and will need to work on a truncated schedule? Well, uh, agencies have been preparing for a presidential transition since the summer. There's a, a career official who's responsible for uh, working on the transition at their agency and working on the government-wide transition planning committee. Um, but uh, right now they're between a rock and a hard place. The, the, the incumbent administration is pushing its policies hard while at the same time not allowing uh, conversations to go on with the incoming administration. A great example of this is the budget. Uh, traditionally, when there's going to be a transition, the budget that the existing administration puts forward is called a current services budget, not a full budget. 
but this administration has the uh, the entire executive branch putting together its own full budget, uh, knowing full well that that the Biden administration is going to have to redo that document as soon as it is inaugurated into office. And that is a crying shame. That is a complete waste of taxpayer resources and energies, the energies of hardworking civil servants. Dan, less than a minute left. Combine that concept that Robert just outlined with the changes that are happening at the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, other federal agencies. Are these setbacks for the Biden transition team or are they just bumps in the road that they'll overcome? So the Biden team has set up a really strong management process. Um, it, they've observed best practices from other transitions and put them into action. Uh, they're moving forward. Um, it is important for them to get in and talk to the agencies as soon as possible to address these crises, to develop their budget proposals, which will happen very quickly uh, after January 20, that the president has to send up a, an initial budget concept proposal, and then two months later, sort of a detailed budget. So that those actions really need to take place as soon as possible as the team moves forward. Dan Chenick, Robert Shea, thank you both very much for joining me for the number one story of the week. Good to be with you all. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.